Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Well, welcome. Um, I haven't had the chance to welcome everyone here yet. So, um, welcome. My name is Andrew. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just really great to be with you here today. If it is your first time or you haven't been around for a little while, you are coming right in the middle of a, uh, a preaching series where we're looking at Exodus. We're kind of journeying from Exodus um, between um, Easter Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. We're kind of doing this journey of Exodus, talking about death to life. And the themes of death to life that we see in um, the God's people story in Exodus. And there is so much that we can pull apart. You know, there is, you might go, well, look, when we finish this series, why didn't they talk about this? And why don't we talk about that? And why didn't they have this moment where they talked about the golden calf? Or why didn't they talk about this, that, and the other? You know, there is so much in Exodus. It's a, it's a massive book. Uh, obviously, a very important book to God's people historically. And we're not, it's not going to be able to cover it all. Um, but we are looking at different themes that we see in, um, of God taking his people, as he always does, from death to life. Michael began a couple of weeks ago looking at the beginning of Exodus um, and talked about how God's people at the beginning of Exodus find themselves in a place of absolute oppression. They are suffering. They are suffering badly. They, are, they are, um, have had to go through genocide, losing their firstborn sons. And, they've got, and, and they're in slavery at the hands of the Egyptian people. They'd, they'd once been welcomed. We, if you look back in Genesis, you know the story of Joseph. They'd once been welcomed in Egypt. In fact, Joseph was so welcomed that he ended up being um, made prime minister or second in charge of Egypt and was able to bring his whole family in. They were once welcomed as this kind of this small band of people, this family. Um, and Israel had then... Um, this group of people called Israel had then been blessed by God and had grown into a large group um, over 430 years. And now they were seen as a threat to Pharaoh and to eat its leadership and its people. And so this place that had been a refuge, um, this place that had been a place where they had run, almost had run to in, in drought and famine, this, this home that they had known, that generations had grown up in, that kids had, had um, been born and grown up and had families and died, this, this place where they had lots of history was no longer safe. And the beginning of Genesis begins with them in suffering, crying out to God, and we hear, as Michael shared, that God hears their cry, and he raises up an exile in Moses to lead them and to represent them, to prepare a way for them to finally re-enter into the promised land that their forefathers had been promised. And last week, Miria took us through the continuing story as the evil of um, Pharaoh and Egypt are confronted by God. As, as God calls his people out and, and sends Moses to confront Pharaoh uh, and say, let my people go, God then brings upon plagues of judgment and we see that um, even in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, even when there is this moment, as Miriam shared last week, where kind of he switches and Pharaoh becomes really hard towards what God is wanting to do, that we see God has purpose and has a plan and has a promise for his people as he always does, as he does for us. 
And so in Exodus, we see God, after 400 years, is taking his people on a journey from Egypt to the edge of the promised land, a journey of belonging into purpose and into promise. From death, their life had turned into death in Egypt, death from Egypt's sins, sins. and then later, as they in the wilderness and God starts to speak to them, he shows them the death from their own sin, and he takes them into life in him. And today we're looking at the big turning point in Israel's story in chapter 14. Here we find them at the ends of themselves, with their backs against the water on the western shore of the Red Sea, with Egypt surrounding them. It makes me ask myself, it makes me ask you, have you ever felt like you've had nowhere to turn? Have you ever felt like you've had no escape? Have you had nowhere to go? Have you ever felt like there's a moment where you're like, I don't know what's going to happen next and I don't know what to do about it? Years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church plant and our church was quite unique because when I arrived there, it was actually full of a whole bunch of recent arrivals to Australia and they are mainly Congolese. Brownie would remember this. And um, I remember once getting a call from my lead pastor about one of the Congolese women in our church. Her brother had just died unexpectedly in a refugee camp in Uganda. Died while he was waiting there in that camp, hoping to migrate to be with his family here in Australia. It was sudden, he was young. And the whole Congolese um, community, and of course she, was totally distraught. And they were holding a memorial for him in her home here in Adelaide on a Sunday afternoon. Now, I'd actually been away that weekend. I wasn't at church. I hadn't been around. Um, But my pastor called me because he was unable to make it, and he wanted to know if I would just go simply to represent the church. Because I was on leadership in the church, and so, you know, being there was a good thing to be able to do. And he said, if you can make it, that would be great. You only really only have to pop in for an hour or so. From what I've heard, it's kind of a bit like a wake in her home. Um, so just go, pop in, do your thing. At the end of your holidays, you'll be fine. And when um, I felt to go, I went straight from my holiday. I had nothing really on me, um, but I was nervous. I mean, this is a totally different cultural clash. Um, and when I arrived, the home was packed. It was full. It was loud. Everyone was either speaking Swahili or Lugandan or other languages that I can't make up right now. I don't know. Um, and there was just so much Food. I'd never seen a cooked goat's head before on a plate. It was, it was this incredibly unique experience. And the sister was visibly distressed, off to the side in a group of people, and um, they were really, really grateful to see me. They didn't expect me. Um, and someone I didn't know, clearly a leader in the community, clearly maybe even a family leader, uh, invited me in. I came in, sat down, I said no to some of the food and tried the bits that I was okay with um, and um, told me it was time. For what? I didn't say that. I felt that. Apparently, I, the pastor, had to lead a service and they took me to the backyard where chairs had been placed in rows, like a chapel. And everyone followed us out. They knew that it was happening the moment I knew that it was happening. And they all sat in chairs, in rows. And I got taken to the front, and I stood there, and I had nothing. I don't speak Swahili or Ugandan. Um, I'd never done a funeral before. Barely, hardly ever been to funerals. 
I had no experience in their culture. I had no notice. It was only 3G service back then, so I couldn't get on my phone very quickly and find out how to do a funeral. I had nothing. I didn't even have my Bible. I just kind of dropped the kids home with Rachel and gone straight to this thing, or actually just Micah. Micah was the only one we had back then. And um, I had nowhere to turn, and I had no one to help me, and everyone was looking at me. The pastor. It's a youth pastor, and a very new youth pastor. <laughs> I didn't know where to go. I had nowhere to escape, no way through. I had nothing. I still remember that feeling. I still remember that moment. Has that ever been your experience? Not that, maybe, but have you ever had a moment just like that where you would have loved to have just absorbed yourself back into the wall? Like that Homer Simpson going back into the hedge. Have you seen that one? That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and like, press control alt delete and then start again start that level again and not take that route as we heard last week god had brought his judgment against egypt for their treatment of israel and their rebellion against god and this is where we find the the um the israelites on the bank of the nile how they get from there to here from this moment where god had brought their his judgment and it had concluded in a plague against the firstborn sons of Egypt, and Israel is released. How do they find themselves from this release moment where they were able to, we read, not only to just take their belongings, they could, they could take all their livestock. In fact, um, God said, and, and exactly what, hap- what he said happened, they actually even took some of the Egyptian stuff with them. It's like going to someone's house and saying, oh, I like that lampstand, I'm taking that with me. Like it was, they had taken so much stuff and they left triumphant. How did they find themselves now on the banks of the Red Sea? with all their stuff. In fact, they had gone there in this incredibly triumphant manner. It says, the Lord, in Exodus 13, 21 to 22, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And at night, a pillar of fire to give them light so they may travel by day or by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. They had their belongings, they had their plunder, and they had this miraculous thing that was leading them, and it would have been an incredible experience for them to have. No wonder they felt triumphant. I don't know about you, but I would have felt pretty great if that was my experience, that God had said, guess what, we're going to be doing this thing, you're going to be out of your comfort zone, but you're going to be able to take all your stuff, you're going to be able to take your neighbor's stuff, and I'm going to lead you with a cloud and by a pillar of fire. You don't have to worry about light at night time. We've got this sorted. You don't have to worry about where we're going. I'm leading the way. But we find themselves on the banks of the Red Sea, terrified. But as we see in the beginning of Exodus 14, God has a plan in all of this. We read. Now you have to excuse me if I don't get some of the ways that these words are presented properly. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, then to encamp in this place, opposite Baal-Zephron. And Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the, um, the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I'll gain glory for myself 
through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. They're in this space because God had a plan. They're in this place because God had a plan because he knows the heart of his people. He has a plan because he knows the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He sees the whole thing and he knows what life looks like at the other end. We read in Exodus 13 that he doesn't take them the usual way, the established way, the way of the sea, it's called, because he knows their hearts aren't ready to face the Philistines yet. That chapter is for much further in their future. And then God begins to take them a southern way, the way of the wilderness, a southern and safer way, and then he turns them back. And instead, he takes them south along the Red Sea, and he gets them to camp on the Egyptian side, the wrong side of that sea. I've got a bit of a picture here um, that Pete might be able to put up of what the Red the Red Sea kind of looks like in that kind of area. It's not perfect. It looks quite glorious there. But you can actually see how mountainous this is. You don't need to necessarily... It's not like a big, long beach and the Egyptian army is coming from this way, so you kind of bolt that way. There are only certain ways to access the sea. And God knows Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, we read on in 14, change their mind when the dust settles. I mean, economically, socially, religiously, even politically, letting this group of Hebrews leave must have been a total disaster. And and then rather than a swift exit, they're still within reach on their side of the Red Sea. So here is an opportunity for this great superpower to fix this, to show the full and swift might of Egypt this great superpower of the day, the great oppressor, the great destroyer of God's people. And the author of Exodus, we read in 14, emphasizes the might of Egypt, the 600 plus chariots who would leave to pursue Israel. And he does so because for Israel, their ongoing story will always be against the might of other nations who always had horses and chariots, something they would never, ever have. Egypt pursues this runaway group of runaway slaves, but God has a plan. He has a different identity for his people. And I love what um, the writer Tim Chester says about this. He says that it's God's desire to take them to the western side, that Egyptian side of the sea, where they were seen as runaway slaves and to take them through the sea to the eastern side to make his people no longer runaway slaves, but liberated people. Exodus records this moment where, Israel, where Egypt catches up with Israel, where they see the army swarming in, the dust cloud, the sound of hooves, which must have been terrifying for them camped by the shore. Old fears must have swept into their heart fast as these 600 plus chariots they now could see on the horizon surrounded them. You've got to remember these people had no living memory of freedom, only oppression. And their oppressor was right there, right there, with their backs to the sea. We read in verse 10 onwards, in chapter 14, that as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, listen to this, 
so used to being in oppression. They said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They were so used to oppression. They were so used to death that they would have chosen their old life over what could be their new. Because here they were, nowhere to go, nowhere to escape, stuck between the army and the sea at the end of themselves. At the end of themselves. But just at the beginning of what God's story would be for them. You see, their story was always supposed to be done with God by their side. When they look at their forebears, this is the way things were supposed to be. God was supposed to be their shepherd, and here he was shepherding them with a cloud and with a pillar of fire. He had been the one who had given them the original covenant. He had been the one who had originally provided Egypt as a refuge, and he was the one who was now bringing them into his promise. He had a plan because God loves his people. You know, it's easy in fear to forget how beloved you are by God. Let me say that again. It is so easy in fear to forget how beloved you are by God, to forget his faithfulness, to forget his promise, to forget his provision. And it makes me ask myself today and ask you today, are there fears in your life that are overshadowing the promise of God? You see, for Israel, in every plague of judgment that they had just witnessed, they had been set apart. They never experienced the natural disaster. They never experienced the disease. They never experienced the darkness. They never experienced the death of their firstborn. They were the people God had passed over. God had already delivered them in their own memory and set them apart from death by the blood of the lamb on their door frames. And he would do it again on the other side of the Red Sea. He would do it again by the blood of the Lamb in their sacrifice. And finally, for all who believe, for us who believe in Jesus, by his death, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. God would deliver and deliver and deliver, and he has delivered you. God first loves us. I love those words in John. We love because God first loved us. Always. As the writer of Hebrews says in 10.23, he who is promised is faithful. Israel had seen God's deliverance before. They had seen how set apart they were. They were led by a pillar of um, cloud and a pillar of fire, and yet still in fear, they could only see what was surrounding them instead of trusting in the faithfulness of God. Instead of looking at this, at what God was doing, they were looking at the might of the world around them. How easy is that for us to do? Yet in all their rebellion, in their fear and in their complaining, Moses responds with something incredibly important about God's character in verse 13 and 14. He says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. 
You only need to be still. He says, do not be afraid. He says, stand firm. He says, be still. Because you will see the deliverance. And that word deliverance is Yeshua. That the Lord will accomplish for you. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will save. The Lord loves and saves his people. And God shows his love for us in our sin by giving his own son, who he named Yeshua. Jesus. You read that in Matthew chapter 1. Because he will save his people from their sins. I love what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 7. In fact, I love the whole letter of Titus. But in verse 4 and 5, it says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. God is Yeshua. And we do not need to be afraid. In fact, the Bible says, do not be afraid 365 times, one for every day of the year. But more than just his love and more than just his kindness, God is able to save. He is able to save. When we see that in this story, it continues in Exodus 14, um, 15, 16, and I'm going to skip forward to 21 and 22. So then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea onto, onto dry ground. And then from 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. In God's creative power, that same power that created the heavens and earth, we read in verse 22 that God pushes back the sea to make the way for the Israelites to walk through because God is able to save. That's why we see that moment on the boat with Jesus and his disciples and Jesus stands up and speaks, speaks to this storm that these disciples, these practiced fishermen, we're freaking out about. It says, peace, be still. There's this moment, and you can read it, if you read it for yourself in the Gospels, and you can see that there we go, who is this man that can command the wind and the waves? For them, they're like, maybe, maybe. We've heard about this being able to happen before. He must be God. And God is able to make a way for you and he has made a way for you in Jesus. So no matter who you are, your background, your failings, whether you faltered in your faith in him, whether you faltered in your faith in him this morning, all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. And we are all one, as Galatians 3 tells us, no matter our background, our gender, our age, we are all one in Jesus. All who identify with who Jesus is, we are all one in in him and the God who opened the sea can also close the sea these chariots of Egypt this might this superpower might become stuck in the mud on the sea floor the might of Egypt is destroyed and their old life and their oppression of Israel is washed away as God closes the sea back over Egypt God is able God is creator God can open and God can close 
And so what is he opening and closing in your life? I love these words from Isaiah 43, 16 to 19. It says, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses and the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. He says, forget the former things and dwell not on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is able to open and create, but he's also able to close and help you to move forward from. We see that in this story and he does this in our lives. But when Israel stepped onto the Eastern Sea, their story wasn't complete. This isn't the end of the story. It's only the end of 14. Chapter 14, there is many chapters to go and there's a whole Bible yet to read. Their story wasn't complete. It had only just begun. God had much he wants to do in and through them. And he, there is much that he wants to do in and through you. Your story is not over. You could just be at the beginning of your story with God. Ephesians 3 says he's able to do more in you than you could ever ask or hope or imagine. Anyone. And finally, there is one important challenge for the Hebrew people and for us that I want to share today. If you read the whole chapter, you might miss it, but before they cross the sea and before it even split, when they're still in their doubt and still in their fear, the Lord says to Moses in verse 15, these incredibly powerful words. Tell the Israelites to go forward. Tell them to step in. God calls his people, he calls us, he calls you to step into what he has for you. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to see the whole picture. In fact, for them in this moment, the sea hadn't even split yet. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to response. Like the decision for them to cover their door frames with the blood of the Lamb, to believe in God's purpose or to step into the sea, to believe in God's purpose or to step into the sea and to trust God with their whole selves and to believe in God's promise and character. They stepped into that sea with walls of water, the might and the power of water being held back and they had to choose to put one foot in front of the next. Because to step into God's story, to step into God's journey for you, to step into God's purpose for you, to take you from death into life, it will take obedience. It will take belief. It will take trust. It will take your whole self laid before him, allowing him to speak into it. Their life beyond this moment with God as their shepherd would continue to require more and more steps of obedience, just as it does for us. So, what is he calling you into today? He speaks to us by his spirit and he lays things on our heart and he opens things in front of us and he closes things as well. What is he calling you to step into King David, hundreds of years later, would write this psalm. In Psalm 26 and 7, he says, Now this I know, 
the Lord gives victory to his anointed, and he answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Do you trust? Do you truly trust in the name of the Lord? You might be wondering as I finish, how did that funeral end up? <laughs> that wasn't the end of that story either. You know, as I said, and I am not, um, <laughs> that story is completely true and it still freaks me out and I could probably still have nightmares about it. I stood there, I had nothing except one thing, two things really, the conviction to be there, that it was right. So I obediently went. And the desire to love, to follow Jesus' greatest, the greatest commands, to love God by obediently being there, to love my neighbour. That's all I had. I had nothing as I looked at the faces of grief in front of me. They're not Anglo sitting there all kind of stoic. They're weeping, lamenting, expressing their grief. Something I wish I could do more, be more open with my emotions. You might think, well, it's pretty open. <laughs> so what did I do? I prayed for them. I opened my mouth and I spoke. I have no idea what I said. But I do know that God used me he used me in my weakness and he used me in my obedience. And I know because they told me and continued to tell me that being there mattered. And finally, I know that God did something that I simply could not do. He did it, not me. It was terrifying, like it would have been for these Israelites on the shore. But God was there with me as I stepped in. Let's pray. Lord, you always are calling your people forward. You open doors, you close doors, you make a way and you close other ways. Lord, you know each individual story here today. You know the different things that they're facing, maybe grief that they're feeling, confusion, worry, anxiety, fear. But Lord, you are with them. You are with them. You've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, and you're calling each of us to obedience. You're calling each of us to step in. And maybe it's simply like my story, Lord, where stepping in is just doing the next thing that looks like loving you and loving neighbour. Maybe the next thing is um, a big decision that we're facing or something that we don't seem to have all the information for. Maybe it's, a, it's a, like what Moses had, just a knowing, a sense of what you would do or what King David was able to say, that he knew that you were with those he anoints, so he knew that we don't need to trust in those other things, we can just trust in your name. That whatever our story is today, whoever is in this 
room and in our community and whatever we're facing, I pray that you would help each of us to step in. Lord, I pray that for those today who don't know you, who don't know your salvation, Lord, that they would know that you are not just able to save, that you want to save, that you love them beyond any love they could ever possibly know, that you are more faithful than they could ever possibly imagine. I pray for those, as we've already mentioned in worship, those in our family who who don't know that, I pray that they would have a revelation for our friends and our families and our neighbours, that we would see people upon people upon people coming to know that you love and that you are able to save, that people would step in obedience, not having the whole picture, but just knowing a love that's growing inside of them. And Lord, today, for those here, I pray that you would help us to follow where you lead. You're our shepherd. We shall not want. And we love you. But thank you that you first love us.